This is from the book of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. And this is from your Bible, the International Children's Bible, okay? All right. Jesus was born in the town of Bethlehem in Judea during the time when Herod was king. After Jesus was born, some wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. They asked, where is the baby who was born to be the king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and we came to worship him. Well, when King Herod heard about this new king of the Jews, he was troubled. And all the people in Jerusalem were worried too. Herod called a meeting of all the leading priests and teachers of the law, and he asked them where the Christ would be born. Does anybody know the name of the town? It starts with a B. Olive? Bethlehem. Very good. They answered, in the town of Bethlehem in Judea. The prophet wrote about this in the scriptures, in the book of Micah. It says, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, you are important among the rulers of Judah. A ruler will come from you. He will be like a shepherd for my people, the Israelites. That was written in the Old Testament, and they were talking about it in the New Testament. Then Herod had a secret meeting with the wise men from the east, and he learned from them the exact time they first saw the star. Then Herod sent the wise men to Bethlehem. He said to them, go and look carefully for the child. When you find him, come tell me. Then I can go and worship him too. Do you think he wanted to worship Jesus? I don't think so. The wise men heard the king and then left. They saw the same star they had seen in the east. It went before them until it stopped above the place where the child was. When the wise men saw the star, they were filled with joy. They went to the house where the child was and saw him with his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshiped the child, and they opened the gifts they brought for him. They gave him treasures of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But God warned the wise men in a dream not to go back to Herod. So they went home to their own country by a different way. Thank you, Eden. How many of you want to sign? Yeah, let's go. Thank you, children. How many of you right now are ready to sign up and work in our children's ministry? Raise your hand loud and proud. Okay, I see that hand back there. Okay, it's a special discounted offer this month only. So uh, get involved in our kids' ministry. They are awesome. All right, so the Advent season is here. Nobody excited? It's one of my favorite times of the year. All week long, I've been listening to Christmas music. All week. How many of you love Christmas music? All right, now be honest. How many of you really don't like Christmas music? Raise your hand. Okay. I've got a scientific journal that I read this last week. I'm not kidding. That explains you. If you don't like Christmas music, listen, this is what the journal said. You had a terribly difficult childhood. I am so sorry for that. But that's really what the journal said. So I'm going to do some therapy and intervention for you, okay? So if, if you're online watching this or if you're here right now, here's what we're going to do. This is therapy for those who had difficult childhoods. We're gonna play a medley. We're gonna sing a medley of Christmas carols for you. And I want you to take particular notice. What are the emotions that go through your heart? Here we go. 
How many of you right now are suddenly in kind of a bad mood? All right, well, I saw one hand. All right, you need help. We're going to help you. This is a sermon, and this is a series. Even with children running around the sanctuary, we are going to help you find your joy in Christmas as well. That last song, by the way, that we sang, that they sang, We Three Kings, God Rest You, Merry Gentlemen, absolutely inaccurate title. And this series is actually going to untangle that and present to you the right, really, the right understanding of that story. So here we go. You ready? We're going to open up our Bibles. Everybody, even children, parents, get your, get your children's Bibles out. If you're watching this at home, get your Bibles out to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to walk through this. And we have a lot to talk about and not a lot of time. So let's get right to it. Verse 1. Now after Jesus was born. Now people are looking at me. Why are you looking at me? Look at your Bible. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Now let's take a break. Because here's what I'm about to do. I'm going to tell you a lot about Herod the king, but I'm actually going to tell you a lot the whole month about Herod the king. Then I'm going to tell you a lot about the wise men. And I'm going to tell you more about them in the next three weeks. And then we're going to see what can we learn from the wise men and Herod. That would be a much better way to approach Christ the child king. Herod the king, he's not a nice guy. And by the way, at this moment in biblical history, he has no idea he's got two years to live. He was brilliant. But underneath all of that brilliance was a psychotic evil. He was despised 
by the Jewish people. Here's why. He was a half-Jew. He was descended from Esau. He was Idumean. He's an Edomite. That means he's not even legally able to sit on the throne of Israel, but he got the throne. He acquired the crown because he had good relations with the emperor of Rome. It was the emperor that made him the king of Israel, and the Jewish people hated him. I'll tell you why the emperor did. Because the emperor valued more than anything else in all of the regional kings, loyalty. And Herod was loyal to the emperor. He was a brilliant builder, I mentioned. It's because he built the temple in Jerusalem, humongous. And listen to this, he built an entire city on the Mediterranean called Caesarea, and he named it that after Caesar Augustus. But it was Caesar Augustus who once said of Herod, it's better to be one of Herod's hogs than one of his sons. Do you know why he said that? Because he murdered three of his children. Three of them. And you know what else happened? He had ten wives. His favorite wife was Marion May. Marion May's brother, Aristobulus, was the high priest of Israel. He had a falling out with Herod. Now, mysteriously, Aristobulus was drowned in a public pool in Jericho. It came from an order of Herod. Marion May, his brother, his sister, really didn't appreciate that. She said something to her husband, Herod. Herod had her killed. Her mother, his mother-in-law, really objected fiercely to this. She complained publicly that Herod killed her daughter, so she was offed as well. This was Herod. He was an evil, psychotic, ruthless king. Better to be Herod's hog than to be his son. You know what he did in 4 BC? He's dying now. It's about two years in the future from this point. He's dying. He's, the Bible says he's been eaten by worms. He's infected all over his body. He's gone sepsis on this. He's dying, and he gives an order. When I die, blow the trumpet in Jerusalem, gather all the wealthy, and bring them into a big room and put them all to death, because I know nobody's going to mourn me. And this way, there will be laments going up all over Jerusalem. That was his order to be given upon his death. Thankfully, thankfully, it was never carried out when he died. But he's about to meet a group of travelers. Look at verse 1 again. These are wise men from the east, and they have come to Jerusalem. Now, let's get a little bit of a background on the wise men. They're from the Parthian Empire. There's only really one competitive empire to the Roman Empire. There's only one empire that the Romans feared. It was the Parthian Empire. You've got to go straight up from Jerusalem and then hang a right over the top of the Arabian Desert. It is Western Iran and Iraq today. It's a 650-mile trip from the Parthian Empire down to Jerusalem. So, children, I want you to imagine something. All of you kids, I'm going to ask you a personal question, actually. Children, how many of you, your parents bought you a camel, a real live camel? How many of you have a camel at home? And I'm talking a real one. Nobody, parents, come on. Christmas is coming. 
buy your children camels, and then let me ask you to imagine something. Imagine, if you would, that you get on your camel that your parents buy you this Christmas. And you start from Easton, Pennsylvania, and you ride that camel all the way to Louisville, Kentucky, all the way to Indianapolis, Indiana. That's how far it was one way from the Parthian Empire to Jerusalem. 650 miles. That's a lot of camel riding. And how would they even know that they should be taking this trip? Well, don't you remember Daniel and Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego? They all lived in the Parthian Empire. This is where Babylon was. This is where they taught. This is where Daniel wrote the scriptures. There was a huge settlement of Jews in the Parthian Empire. And so we get to these wise men, and some people call them the Magi. Some of your Bibles call them that. That doesn't mean that they're sorcerers. That doesn't mean that they're magicians. It means that they are God-fearing scientists. Did you know that? The wise men are astrologers. They are scientists. They are, this group is a God-fearing group, but there's something you need to know about the ancient world before you're going to understand why would they travel by camel or donkey all of that distance to meet Jesus. Well, let me tell you something about the ancient world. You ready? This is so interesting, and you really kind of need to know this. The entire ancient world looked at natural phenomenon like comets in the night sky or volcanic eruptions or earthquakes or hurricanes. They looked at all of those as being divine omens. The gods were speaking and something huge was happening. So if you saw a star suddenly appear, all of these wise men would have said something huge is happening. The gods have given us an omen. In fact, the entire world in 4 BC was expecting the birth of a great king who would be a deliverer. Did you know that? Worldwide. Not just the Roman Empire, not just the Parthian Empire, the entire world had a great expectation that something was about to happen. There was a great king about to be born, and he would be the deliverer. And all of a sudden, the wise men, their eyes are to the skies. They saw his star when it rose. Now, there are all kinds of books. You probably have seen a movie on this star. There's all kinds of astronomical explanations. I'm going to tell you what I think. I don't think this is an ordinary star. I think this is the Shekinah glory of God. It appears. It travels west because you don't go through the Arabian desert. You go west and then south to Jerusalem and then south even more to Bethlehem and then stops over the home. I think this is the Shekinah glory of God. I think God is drawing these wise men to himself. And there's more to come on that in a little bit. Look at verse 2. What do they do when they get to Jerusalem? Well, they go to see Herod. Why? That's what you always did. Otherwise, you're going to look like you are the scouting team of an imminent invasion, a military incursion. So they go to the local ruler, that is Herod, and they asked him, verse 2, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come 
to worship him. Now, I told you Herod was brilliant. He built a harbor in Caesarea that even to this day was an engineering and is an engineering marvel for the tools and the equipment that they had back then. He was brilliant when it came to building, but he was not brilliant when he came to the scriptures. He did not know the word of God. He had no idea how to answer the wise men, so he stalls, and he gathers his own wise men. They're called the chief priests and scribes, and he says, hey, I've got a group from the Parthian Empire, and they're asking me where the king is because his star arose. And the scribes and the priests said, Herod, why don't you know your Old Testament? Why don't you know your Hebrew scriptures? Because it's Micah 5.2. That's where we're told by God there's going to be a king born in Bethlehem. So he gathers the wise men, Herod does, that came from the Parthian Empire. And he says to them, hey, you know what? I'm going to tell you where he's going to be born. He's down six miles south of here in a little city called Bethlehem. And when you find him, send word back to me because I want to throw a baby shower. No, that's not what he wanted. In fact, Eden was telling us what it was. He wanted to kill this pretend king. He wanted to protect his throne. He was paranoid about his crown. And so the wise men traveled down to the city of Bethlehem, and it came to rest, the star did, I think the Shekinah glory of God, over the place where the child was. Now, I have good news, and I have really good news. The good news is that was all introduction. Isn't that good news? The really good news is now we're getting to the best part of the sermon, because now we're going to talk about how we can approach Christ this season. How we can approach Christ this season. How can we do that? I'm going to give you four ways that we're learning from the wise men. And we're going to be hearing about this all month long. Number one, here we go. How will you approach Christ this season? First, they had joyful hearts. Now you've got your Bibles open. Look at verse 10. They, the wise men, rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now, let me tell you something about the ancient Bible. It did not have the ability to italicize the text, nor bold it, nor underline it, nor exclamation points. These are all things that we use today. You go home, today you write an email or a letter to a friend or tomorrow with your coworker, and there might be parts where you really wanna draw some emphasis. And so you bold it or italicize. And man, if you are really trying to get your point across, you are going to underline it too, and then you're gonna put a big old fat exclamation point at the end of the sentence. Well, they couldn't do that in the Bible. They had two ways to really get you to notice something huge. One was repetition. Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's repetition. The other way that they could do it is the use of what's called superlatives. And here is a perfect example. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. You just pile expression on top of expression on top of expression, and all of a sudden you're really getting the point. Their hearts were filled with joy. All right, so we've got to stop. 
Now, here's your danger. You could easily walk out of here in just a little bit the same exact way you came in, and that would be a waste of a sermon. That's a waste of church. That's a waste of worship. You don't want that. You want to sit underneath God's word and let it stir you to a holy response. And the way that you do that, you just got to be utterly honest. Are you full of joy right now in this season towards Christ? Are you rejoicing exceedingly with great joy? Are superlatives capturing your love for Jesus and your joy for Jesus? Well, it's not because you're going to be getting gifts in a few weeks. Or if you're like my son Aaron, he actually gets more pleasure and more joy out of giving gifts than he does getting them. So maybe some of you are so excited because you've already got the Christmas gifts to your children. And you can't wait to see the wonder and the excitement in their eyes when they open them Christmas morning. All right, well, that makes you really happy. But I'm talking about are you exceeding exceedingly joyful? Are you rejoicing exceedingly with great joy? Why? Not because of gift giving or gift receiving, but because Jesus, your king, you met him, you know him, and you love him. Okay, now remember, I warned you a few minutes ago that you could easily leave here the same way you came in. That is not acceptable. It's not acceptable. So here's what you can do. I'm going to give you four ways from the wise men. The first one, they had joyful hearts. And if this is not you or if this is not me, here's what you can do to bring about a change. And we're going to celebrate that in a little bit with the Lord's Supper. So if you're at home watching this, you better scramble to get your juice and cracker. So here's what you can do. You can actually take captive your mind. Do you know what that means? All right, I think all of you have done this. Haven't you ever laid on a bed underneath a ceiling fan and experienced what's called the stroboscopic effect where you try and you try and all of a sudden for a, just a split nanosecond you can see that one fan. It's always a blur until all of a sudden that one fan blade materializes. That's the stroboscopic effect. You can actually create that effect by God's spirit. You can take captive your minds. Here's how you do it. If your heart is not exceedingly rejoicing and full of great joy, then you can confess. You know what confess means in the Bible? It means to agree. It means to acknowledge. It means, oh, God, you're right. If I'm really honest with myself, I'm not really joyful right now. Maybe something's happening in your family. Maybe something's happening in your marriage or your job or your health. And you know what? That sort of put doom and gloom over everything. But that is not acceptable to God. He wants you full of joy. You can confess. You can agree. It also means to cast like a fishing lure. You cast it out. Meaning, God, I don't know how to get joy in my heart. So, but I'm acknowledging I'm not exceedingly rejoicing with great joy, but I don't know how to get it in there. So I'm throwing it onto you, and I'm going to repent out of what is happening in my heart right now as what you show me. I'm going to repent, and then I'm going to come back to you and worship. Now, kids, you could be young and do this. Did you know that? You don't have to be older. 
You could say, God, I see it now. You showed me I'm not full of joy over the Christ King. That's not good. That means I've got a lukewarm heart. And God says, I'd rather your heart be cold or hot. Don't give me that lukewarm, tepid stuff. Man, that makes me want to spit it out, God said. That's what Jesus said. I'd rather have you hot and blazing with the love for me, with joy, or just go cold. Don't come to me with lukewarm hearts. That disgusts me. Is your heart lukewarm? I'm going to show you the root of your joy, and it is so simple. You ready? How did the wise men get from the Parthian Empire all the way west over the Arabian Desert and all the way south to Jerusalem and then down to Bethlehem? It wasn't that they were brilliant. It wasn't that they were such good astrologers and scientists that they figured it out. No, a star appeared and led them. They followed the star. God led them to himself. And that's the root of your joy. If you're a Christian, you're only a Christian because God drew you to him. That's the source of your joy. And if he drew you to him, he did it so that he could have a relationship with you. And he is jealous for your joy. You know why God's jealous for your joy? It's simply this. If you're not full of joy with him, then you're forfeiting the blessings that he is wanting to give you. He wants to give. He wants to lavishly give. He wants to generously give. And if you're not joyfully, exceedingly, rejoicingly captivated with the Christ King, then you're missing out on what he so desires to give you and what he drew you to him to experience. All right, so some of you, you're just not listening fast enough, so I'm going to pick up the pace a little bit more. Number two, here we go. They had single-minded hearts, not only joyful hearts, single-minded hearts, verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. Now, are you seeing some subtle clues in this? They're not in a cave. And Jesus is not a baby in a manger. You know what a manger is? It's a food trough made out of stone that they would put water and hay in at times to feed the animals. They're not in a cave. They're not in a manger. They're in a home. They have settled into Bethlehem. They're in a house. And look what the word says. Jesus is a child. In the Greek, that means he's between one and two years old. They did travel, the wise men, from Parthian empire to see a baby. They saw a toddler. He's learning to walk. He's learning to speak. And watch what happens. They go into the house and they saw the child. They had a single-minded focus. Listen, they didn't go all that way to see mom. They didn't go all that way to see Joseph. Yes, he's still alive. He reappears in the story in verse 13. He's probably a carpenter. He's probably out working. I don't know. The text doesn't tell us. What it does tell us, though, is that what captured their eyes first was the Christ child. All right. Now listen. What's capturing your eyes right now? You got to be honest. 
If you can't be honest, even privately, you have no capacity to change. So if your hearts are being consumed with the things of this world, if your hearts are consumed even with your children, so that your love for your children is greater than your love for your Jesus, if your hearts are consumed with your calamity, a cancer diagnosis, a problem in your family, listen, if that's capturing your heart, you're not going to have joy. And your mind is not focused on Jesus. Number three, not only did they have joyful hearts and single-minded hearts, they had worshiping hearts. Verse 11, I want you to see this. They fell down and worshiped him. Now, I'm going to tell you what the word worshiped means. It means to kiss and adore. To kiss and adore. Now, men, I need every one of you to look at me because I just lost you with the word adore. I mean, if you ever have a man come to you and say, you have an adorable truck, <laughs> or a wife or a woman that watches you running a Husqvarna 395 chainsaw with 93 cc's of power and says, oh, the orange color is so adorable. Listen, there's something violent that rises up within you. It's just not right. So I know I lost you. With the word adore. Men just don't use that language. I'm going to get you back though. You ready? Because you all like to kiss. And if you don't like to kiss anymore, just die and go away. <laughs> you still better love to kiss. Even if it's your grandchildren. There's something about a kiss. Man, I'm going to get you back. You ready? When you're kissing the one that you love, there are only two people on the planet, you and her. That's it. She is the object of your desire. She is the center of your delight. The kiss is just the overflow of your heart. All right, but now listen, I know this. I really do know this, unfortunately. There are people in our church that don't kiss anymore. I don't know why, but they don't. I'm going to get you back with this one, though. Do you know this word, worshipped, was the exact word that described your dog licking your fingers because it loves you? So maybe you don't like kissing your spouse, men. Maybe you don't like... Uh, the word adore, but I think you're probably going to get this one because if you're a dog lover like I am and that dog comes up and starts licking your fingers and there's something in you that just moves with an affection towards that dog, now you've got what the word worship means. It means to kiss and adore. The wise men came into the home. Their eyes alighted immediately on the Christ child. They fell down low and kissed and and adored. They worshiped. Now I'm going to tell you a whole lot more next week, Lord willing, about that. But I want to say this before we go to the fourth and final point. Adoration, the object of your delight, your worship demands to be expressed. And this is where we're going to see the first of the three gifts of the wise men that they brought with them to see the Christ child. And the first one was gold. 
Now we're going to look at these gifts all month. And we're going to see why they brought gold. And let me tell you about this. The Parthian people literally had a law on their books. It was forbidden to ever come into the presence of a king without a gift. And the only gift that is appropriate for a Parthian ruler was gold. Do you see what they're saying in that gift of gold? They see in this little boy... The king. Why? Because they had faith-filled hearts. Look at verse 11. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, and the first one was gold. And giving gold to this toddler king, these wise men acknowledged, even from an empire away, even though this is a one- to two-year-old little boy, this was the king of all kings. This is the ruler of all rulers, and they owed their allegiance to him. Now watch what happens. I'm going to explain why you had to bring gold to a Parthian king. Now I need you to listen. It was a gift of loyalty and submission and humility. It was a gift acknowledging the value, the worth of the king who had the sovereign right to rule over you. All right, now this is deep. This is oh so deep. And you got to go down in your hearts to find it. Do you delight, be honest, Do you delight in God's sovereign rule? I'll tell you what, I'll tell you if you don't delight, here's what's happened. You know he's sovereign. You know he has a power to bring all things into accordance with his will. But listen, here's what's happened. You've taken his goodness and you've parsed it away from his sovereignty. And a sovereign God that is not good is a terrifying God. Just like a good God that is not sovereign is a weak God, a powerless God, an ineffective God. You can never separate the two. He is sovereign. He is the king of all kings, and he is good. He is worth your loyalty. He is worth your submission. He is worth bowing down in obedience to. That is faith. How could they see a one to two-year-old toddler and know that he was the king of kings. It's faith. It's faith. All right, now friends, we're coming to the communion. You simply cannot come to Jesus without worshiping him as your king and your Lord. I mean, listen, to say to Jesus, I believe in you, but I don't want to serve you, is exactly the opposite of worship. We come to Jesus as our king, not just our savior, and we fall down in recognition of his greatness. And maybe right now, somebody here needs to fall down to Jesus for the first time and receive salvation. Do you realize that salvation is just and ask away. It is the recognition God, Jesus, is worth it. 
And I am in trouble because of my sins. It's the recognition that if I come to him in faith and believe in him by faith, I can be saved. And you just simply ask, Jesus, save me, and you will be saved for eternity. My friend, if you have never come to Christ, your King and Savior in faith, then let me ask you, please do not participate in this. Refrain from this. This is not for you. This is for the Christian. But I urge you to settle it today. Jesus is worth the trip. He is worth your faith and worship. But listen, you might be saying, you might be saying, yes, I have come to Jesus, but somewhere along the way I lost my love for him. I will never forget the parents of an eight-year-old boy in Nazareth calling me up and saying, hey, would you come over and talk to our son? He's asked for you. He's got something to share, and he doesn't want to share it with anybody but you. I said, I'll be over there in just a few minutes. I went over there. I walked in the home. That eight-year-old boy and I, we went into the living room, and he says to me these words I'll never forget. He says, Pastor Tim... I can feel that I have about a foot of dirt in my heart and I don't know how to get it out. I said to him, I know the vacuum cleaner that could clean your heart. And I walked him through the gospel. And right there, that eight-year-old boy who is still serving God today made that simple ask and was saved made a new person. He recognized, eight years old, he recognized that Jesus is sovereign. Jesus has the rights to his life. But Jesus also has the means of saving him. And he cried out for salvation. And you might be saying, well, yeah, I did something like that. Maybe not quite like that, but I've done that too. But really, honestly, as I've been sitting in this message, i got to be really honest. I'm lukewarm. My heart's grown cold. I lost my love. Well, the Lord's Supper is your motivation to blow those fading embers back into a flame again. For the wise men, the trip to meet Jesus, no matter how far it was, how long it took, the cost of their gifts, it was worth it. And you know why? And this is how we're going to end as we go into communion. It's because the Christ King will always outgive you. The Christ King will always I'll give you. And you're going to hear it in the words of Jesus just hours before he's crucified. He's in the upper room. This is Luke chapter 22. He's celebrating the Passover, and it goes like this, starting at verse 14. When the hour came, he reclined at table, Passover meal, with the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, that means he prayed, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not eat, or drink rather, of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Now watch what he does. He took bread, this is unleavened bread, flat. Never can rise, because leaven symbolizes sin. 
So they always took the leaven out and the yeast out during Passover. He takes his flat bread and he breaks it and he gives it to each of his disciples. And when he prayed and gave thanks, he broke it, gave it to them saying, now listen to this, this is my body. Now watch the language. Which is given, which is given, which is given for you. And then he tells them, he commands them to do something so weird. Do this in remembrance of me. And really what it means is bring back to mind right now as you eat the bread how much I've given you because I love you so much. And we're going to do that. Take that top layer and peel it back to that wafer. And pray with me before we eat. Father, thank you for what we are about to eat. Lord, for this wafer, it's a symbol, it's a signpost, like a rest area in two miles. This is a sign along the highway of Christian living. Come back and bring back to mind what I have done for you. Pull off the highway of busyness. And slow it down. And remember, I have always outgiven you. Because I've given you everything. So let your hearts be joyful. Let them be single-minded on me. Focused on me. Or let them be full of worship, of kissing and adoration. And let them be full of faith because I have saved you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's eat to that. Now he's not done in Luke 22. He has one more thing to say on the subject. And he says in verse 20, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, I want you to look at those two words, poured out. Now, bring the other two with them, for you. Poured out for you. Hey, you want to know something about what Jesus did? He didn't find some ancient syringe and put it into the crook of his elbow and extract a pint and splash it on the altar and said, there you go, there's your salvation. Oh, that would never have worked. No. He had to bleed to death. He poured out all that he had for you, for me. He didn't keep anything in reserve. He didn't say, I've got a pretty good gift, but it's not as good as what I gave you last year. No, he gave everything for you. Is that blowing the embers of your heart so that you can have rejoicing that is exceeding with great joy? And that your focus could be on him more than on anything else. So that you bow down before him kissing and adoring him like a dog licking the fingers of the master. You just want to worship the one who poured out everything for you because he's given you faith. He drew you to him.
That's what this is designed for. This is why we do this regularly. It's to blow on the embers of your faith because we all go lukewarm. But you cannot stay there. And if you're there, you confess and you repent and you worship and you drink in faith. Let's drink it. I'm going to close with this. Just give me another minute and a half. There are two groups of people here right now and online. There are those who have been drawn 650 miles away or however far, I don't know. But whatever the means was, whether it was a star, whether it was the Spirit of God, whether it was a very difficult circumstance or a powerful message or a lesson from a children's teacher, whatever it's been, you've been drawn and you made the trip to meet the King of Kings and your hearts were full of joy, bowed down before him and worship and faith and single-minded focus. You are a Christian. But then there are those who have said the trip is not worth it. I want the preciousness that I possess for me. And I can't and I won't believe. Friend, listen. If that is you, you are not a wise man or you are not a wise woman. You are what the Bible calls a fool. And you are on your way to destruction, and you do not need to go there. Your salvation is an ask away. And the wise men just showed you who can save you. It's Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for what we're about to learn all month, Lord. I am so excited about this. And as we bring to a close this message, and Pastor Kyle will be dismissing us shortly. Lord, let us come back to the reality, Lord. Are each of our hearts rejoicing exceedingly with great joy? Are we having single-minded focus on you, meaning that we're focusing on you more than on anything or anyone? Are we worshiping, kissing, and adoring hearts full of love for you, and are we full of faith? Do we believe? Have we made the trip that you drew us to take? Father, I pray for everybody here, everybody listening, Lord, if they have not yet made that trip to the Christ child, the king of all kings, Lord, let them do it today. And Lord, if there's anybody here, when I'm sure there's many that are, our hearts honestly have just grown cold, Blow on the embers of our faith, rekindle them, and let us start today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.